0: Hey,
1: everybody, and welcome to Enjoy the View. I'm Ben, and today on our panel, we have Tessa. Hello. And Ari. Hello. And our special guest for this episode is Kevin Lewis. Kevin, would you like to introduce yourself?
2: Hello, I'm Kevin. I'm a developer advocate at Vonage and an event organizer and a Vue.js developer, which is probably relevant at this point.
1: Yes, we love our Vue developers. So speaking of being a Vue developer, what brought you to the Vue ecosystem?
2: What's your origin story? When I first started building like front end web stuff with more complex libraries, Not actually that long ago, just a few years ago, I tried React and I really struggled with it. I just found people talk about the magic quite a lot. And magic Mm -hmm. is wonderful, but I need to understand what's happening under the hood. And I think Vue was nicer to write, easier to understand, but also I think a bit more transparent about what's going on. So I found it way easier to get started with. I used to run a development agency and yeah, started writing Vue for some small projects there and then kind of grew with that.
1: Very cool. Yeah, I think you may have a few sympathizers from trying to get into React and just feeling your head being spun around as far as what the heck is going on and class name instead of class and random things like that.
2: (laughs) I feel like once you understand the concepts though, and Vue gives you a much easier launch point for those concepts, you can take those concepts back to React and finally understand what's happening a bit easier. So that's definitely been my experience with it.
1: Yeah, same here, same here. So as a developer advocate for Vonage, what is it like as far as the day-to-day when it comes to organizing events and those sort of things?
2: Yeah, I am very lucky in that I get to do a whole range of things. Get to write blog posts, run internal programs, run our ambassador program, but also support our team going to events making sure that they have what they need to be successful when they're at those events. And we also run some of our own. So yeah, really getting to see it from a whole range of standpoints, attending as a sponsor right through to organizing our own for our audience. Very cool. Very cool.
1: And so, you know, certainly with the everyone being in quarantine now, events and conferences are very different. And so can you speak a bit to what it's been like having to shift to that these days?
2: Yeah. So we started speaking about it a little before the impact was there in terms of events being canceled or postponed. So our team has in it quite a few event organizers, but also some, you know, Twitch streamers and people who exist more in the online space. So we had, and we're a team of about 40 people. So we already had some pretty good knowledge on what it means to run good events. And then we kind of Mm. went further and started to do some new research to find out what it means to run good online events. And what we've kind of shifted to, as well as running some of our own, is helping community event organizers who are having to scramble to find their way online to online events and trying to help them out with that and provide some tooling and some guidance in how to still provide things for their community.
3: Yeah, like we talked about Remo.co in the past and Kevin was actually the one who introduced that to us. So speaking of tooling, can you talk about what softwares you've seen that work for you and what didn't, whether like generally or specifically, like what made them great?
2: Yeah, I think it depends on what kind of end goal you're working towards. I see online events as being anywhere from trying to produce a really slick live TV show that people are watching together. When I think Mm -hmm. of what happened with Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference this year, they did segues between sections, little cutscenes. It was very much a polished live TV show, but it goes all the way through on the spectrum to just trying to emulate offline events in their entirety, including the networking. So it depends Mm -hmm. what you're trying to achieve. I'm a big fan of the more kind of interactive networking focus side because of you know what we do. And for that, as you mentioned, Remo is really cool. So if you imagine a floor plan top down, you have a set of tables and some seats on those tables and you can move around the different tables where every table is a small video call for up to eight people. So you can go around and have conversations with people as well as listen to speakers when they are presenting. I really like that. I really like the networking. It's a bit, you know, it's quite fluid moving between things. But if you're producing a TV show, I mean, there are so many streaming tools. I like StreamYard. It's based in the browser. It still lets you do cool cutaways and bits like that. And it means that if my computer melts, which I was very worried it would do at a Women of React event that I was involved in in April, someone else can jump in because it's all (laughs) browser-based.
3: So Women of React, was that the first remote conference that you organized in this current context?
2: Absolutely. And there was a lot of learning and there were a lot of things that were very suboptimal about the tech setup, but people really enjoyed it. Like it looked really good, but at any point my machine could have melted. Genuine concern, (laughs) a base 13-inch MacBook Pro. Oh gosh. And I, I was pushing it. There were like eight or nine people in a Skype call. And OBS, the streaming software in the middle, and then it was all going up. Yeah, exactly. Right. There was a lot going on. And then there was a browser feeding captions in and our music playing in the background or in a media player on my computer. And yeah, at some point it could have all gone downhill, but it didn't.
3: (laughs) So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you got into event and conference organizing and also how that experience was juxtaposed with this like first virtual conference experience.
2: Yeah, sure. So setting the scene back in 2011, never written a line of code before. I could just about dabble around with Photoshop. And a friend of mine pretty much forced me to go along to a hackathon. It was a week long hackathon. It was just the days and you kind of go home during the evenings. And I, you know, fiddled with Photoshop and we built a project, but the people there were honestly incredible. I very much lucked out with just such a lovely community at that event. I spent the summer teaching myself to code in some loose sense. And then it kind of went from there. So forced to go to my first event. Then I volunteered for that event the following year. And then I found myself working for the company that delivered that event. I kept volunteering and then eventually got hired as an intern and then not an intern anymore and ended up building out their developer community. So a lot of hackathons there, a few meetups, mostly smaller events, though a few large ones. And then from there, just Yeah, run lots of events in different contexts, not just hackathons and meetups and workshops, but also big conferences and small conferences and kind of everything in between. So the thing I really, really like is firstly, I like putting out fires on the day. Like someone has to like that job and that person is me. I feel like at this point, I've seen a lot of problems crop up and I broadly know how to fix them creative problem solving with whatever you have in front of you. And this very much gives me a chance to do that. I also like bringing people together and giving them a space to network. Going online kind of ruins both of those joys for me. I still (laughs) like putting on content for people. People get value out of events that I run and am involved in. And that's why I continue to do it, as well as it being part of my job. And I like having a job. But I like bringing people together in a physical space. And while I still bring people together. I can't really observe it in the same way, so I can't really get my own selfish joy out of it. And while this sounds really odd, events that have less moving parts also have less things that go wrong, which also means I can't problem solve. And they're they're kind of a bit boring by comparison.
3: Yeah, like my screen share isn't working. It's not like a very exciting problem to fix. (laughs)
2: <laughs> it isn't is it but oh we have 90 minutes and somehow we need to acquire another 250 mils and also a thousand pieces of cutlery how do we do that is a bit more of an enjoyable I mean there is obviously a bit of a oh how do we fix this but at least you know, there's an actual problem to solve that you have I don't know maybe I'm just hate myself but yeah, I, I to get it's out of that yeah it's fun <laughs> Yeah, so for those who didn't have a chance to go, so
1: ViewConf US, I think, at least for me, it was the last in person conference I was at. So that happened basically at the cusp. And so Ari Tess and I all were able to make it for at least part of it. And I will say, as the MC, I can empathize with the fires running around and being like, are they done? Did they finish early? <laughs> oh, gosh, I need to get in costume. Like,
0: <laughs> ah, oh, run, 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 run. run. Oh, yeah, I saw you running a lot. <laughs>
1: yes lots of running in a pink dino costume that was inflatable was
2: totally normal (laughs) workout as a little organizer tip don't run then it looks like something's wrong briskly walk (laughs) then it looks like you have your shit together but when
1: you're in a dino suit it doesn't look any different so you just
3: (laughs) I feel like running may just be on brand for you, Ben, because like at Connect Tech, you weren't emceeing and you weren't speaking. And yet, as an audience member, I recall you distinctly running back and forth between rooms at high speed. It's nice to hear that you were doing so much. I forgot about that.
1: (laughs) Yes, I did try to watch two different tracks at the same time. That was tricky.
3: (laughs) Tricky. How'd that work out?
1: You kind of use the closure concept to close the gap between what they last said, between the five minutes you ran back and forth between talks. Oh
3: man. What are some typical things that you see conference or event organizers mess up time and time again that you have some really nice way to solve? And then also, what are issues that are maybe less obvious to conference organizers, but like as a more experienced organizer, you can kind of detect or an issue. Like I feel like, for example, Maybe the networking part, conference organizers don't always plan that out so carefully and they think it doesn't really matter, but it might, stuff like that.
2: I mean, logistically, there are a set of issues that you only have to go wrong once before you start to know how to fix them and what to look out for. Things like how many access points are there and where are they and where are the concentration of people? Do we need to bolster that and put up some more networking? Because Wi-Fi going down at events sucks for everyone involved. Food is another one that's challenging and even as an experienced organiser still is something that is the only part about events that still worries me every single time is how much food to buy. And I generally dependent on the length of the event and provisions and kind of how you have to set things up with the venue is I always favour getting something cheap and bulky. And something that will keep a few hours for lunch. So you overdo it slightly, but people can graze, you know, with seconds. And that gives you enough time to fix dinner at a hackathon, for example. So lots of bagels for lunch, like two bagels per person, which is a lot. Like that is not going to be the reality, even when considering your no-shows. And then under order slightly on dinner. And then you can always go fix it. You have that window to fix it. That's a little tip. And you also mentioned networking. I am always a bit cheeky in that I have enough friends who are also event organizers that I always put plants in the audience. I know that sounds really disingenuous. And <laughs> you just have, you just have, <laughs> generally speaking, you can read a room and you can see people who are alone, but, probably want to be left alone and you see people who are alone because they can't find their way into a conversation well the job of these few people is to go and scoop those people up have a little conversation and use their kind of more social confidence to introduce them to new groups and say hey this is charlie can they join you so yeah plants are very interesting
3: nice yeah i was just watching a video about the lily singh late night show and apparently they were talking about how all these late night shows put plants in the audience too. But for hers, they put them all in the first row sitting next to each other. And like, they're in every episode. So it's very clear that they're plants, but that's That's interesting to put them in conferences. (laughs) Well, at the conference I met Kevin at, I forgot the name, but it was an offshoot of a conference that you organized.
2: Yeah, it was adulting.dev.
3: Yes. I remember that there were a lot of talks I feel like there were also a lot of breaks, but I think we talked about the schedule and how it felt a bit tricky. So, and I think that's something that event organizers always deal with, like how many breaks, when are the breaks, how long are the talks, what if they go over, what if they run short? Like, can you talk a bit about how you schedule things to go smoothly?
2: I would love to. So there are two things there. One is about when to schedule breaks and essentially how long would you want to be sitting down without feeling like you can get up and go to the toilet or go get some fresh air? or go grab a snack. I generally try and schedule a break no more than every kind of hour to hour and a half at an absolute max, but you're kind of bound somewhat by your content and the length and type of your content as well. But, you know, just try and think about how long you would want to be sitting there and then providing enough time for maybe half your audience to go do that. You know, if you have two toilets, well, your break's going to need to be longer because there are fewer facilities for your audience. And then the other thing you mentioned was how to keep things running smoothly. And it almost always comes down to building in subtle buffer time. So, for example, at a conference I run, you got this. We do 25-minute talks and 10 minutes of Q&A, but everyone knows, apart from the audience, that that 10 minutes of Q&A is an incredibly fluid 10 minutes of Q&A. That is the speaker's time to run over if they need to. We could completely get rid of the Q&A if there's no time, or we can shorten it. We can make it longer if they run under. And between the breaks and the Q&A, you have all this time to get yourself back on schedule, so you won't be running behind for long.
0: Yeah, because I, as a speaker, suffered. I'm not really sure what people were thinking with this particular model of having a keynote at the end of lunch. (laughs) The keynote went over and I was the first talk after lunch and you were there, Ben. Mm -hmm.
3: The keynote went
0: over. And so like my room is empty. It's my first talk ever. And I'm like, how long do I wait? Like, (laughs) oh my God, what do I do? (laughs) So I ended up starting after waiting like five or 10 minutes. But at some point I looked up and realized there were four times as many people as when I started. And I was like, oh, I probably should have waited longer. (laughs) Whoops.
2: (laughs) But that's your responsibility as an event organizer to make sure that your speakers feel respected because they have people in the room. And if you are organizing events with, say, the same format every time and you're always having this issue after lunch, that's telling you your lunch needs to be longer or you need to not put that content there or whatever, you need to change something. I very much see like my job as, in some ways, speakers are part of my team in delivering a great day for the attendees. But also I have a responsibility to make sure those speakers feel informed and respected and have a great time.
3: Yeah. I don't remember what was going on that particular lunch, but I remember also for some reason I wasn't able to get to the lunchroom until late. So by the time I got my food and finished eating, Ari's talk was already like partway through. So speaking to your point about making the speakers feel respected, when it comes to the QA section, do you have just in case plants there as well? Because I imagine if there's a Q&A time, Nobody has any questions. That can also be awkward.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Every single talk, we come up with a couple of questions beforehand. We broadly know what the content's going to be. We can create some questions ahead of time. The issue, actually, I think is on the other end where you end up with either too many questions or you need to kind of somewhat moderate the way questions are presented. I can't really talk too much about that. Like it's a skill of the person handing around the mic. For online conferences, it's way easier because people can ask questions while the talk is on. And then the team go through, scoop up a couple of nice questions and present them to the MC to give to the speaker at the end. So the moderation's kind of built into the format because it's kind of asynchronous.
0: Yeah. I'll, by the way, that same talk, no questions during the Q&A and it was horrifying.
2: <laughs> <Ooh>.
0: <laughs> Maybe that's why I never want to speak at a conference
2: again. <laughs> Come speak at my conference. Come speak at my conference in January. We'll look after you. I'll see if he's (laughs) open.
3: I'll I'll be sure to have a three-part question that's actually more of a personal statement prepared just for you, Ari. That's very on-brand, Tessa. (laughs) Ouch.
0: (laughs) Love you.
2: (laughs) Could I ask you a question? As people who attend more events than you organize, what for you, makes really good events. Haha, the table's turn. You weren't expecting that one.
0: <laughs> I think for me, talks are great and all, but the hallway track is always, I think, where I get the most long-term value. So yeah, I think the fact that that's something you personally like to focus on is great. I wouldn't be on this podcast if it weren't for the hallway track at ViewComp, so.
1: <laughs> and for those who haven't been to a conference, what do you mean by hallway track, Ari?
0: The time between talks, or sometimes during a talk, (laughs) when you're, (laughs) let's let's be honest, it does sometimes happen where you're in the middle of a conversation, a a talk has started and you're like, oh, well, too late now, let's continue this conversation. But yeah, it's just the mingling time, getting to meet people that you otherwise wouldn't probably have ever met, comparing war stories, things like that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'll jump on Ari's point on that. Yeah, when it comes to Going to conferences, one thing that online events obviously don't have is basically the after parties and being able to sync up with people for dinner. And, you know, some of the better conferences I've been to have provided more guidance for newer attendees to either like these are the restaurants people are going to, just especially for those who might not be comfortable with putting themselves in a new group, like it's terrifying. That can be a huge win as far as like forming those connections which to then usually establish your group for the rest of the conference. So those have been really important for me personally.
3: I feel like I probably attend as many events as I organize. And the thing that I still don't have a great approach for as an organizer, but appreciate as an attendee, just going back to the hallway track thing for a moment, is I'm terrible at hallway tracking. So I like if there is some kind of structure, like at the adulting.dev, there was a bunch of activities that people could go to after the event, and I was really not looking forward to it because I kind of went to the event at the last minute to help fix some kind of last minute logistical issue. And then all of the events were blocks and blocks away and they all had activities. Like I think, Kevin, we went bowling. And I was like, I don't know any of these people. I didn't know they were plants. I think that's part of what made it successful was it was like a little bit out of your comfort zone, but also there were people there who knew how to make things go more
2: smoothly. For what it's worth, I wasn't a plant. I didn't know there was one. Yeah, I mean, I'm also not. (laughs) Maybe there weren't any. It's
3: actually a plant, but it just (laughs) happens to work out that way, is what I meant. But also, in general, I think the thing I appreciate most is it feels like such a tiny thing, but just knowing where you're supposed to be and where everything is at all times. Mm -hmm. Like, it seems like such a low barrier to entry, but I think there's only one conference I've been to where. The day before, they were like, here's how you get to the venue. Here's places that you can go nearby. Here's the schedule. Here's the locations. Here's a map. Like some places the day of, I'm looking at the conference site schedule and I'm like, I don't know where anything is. <laughs> there was this one talk that I was giving where I didn't even know how to get from my speaker hotel room to the venue. And I was messaging them like, Ben, how do I get there? And I was locked in this, I, I locked myself in a stairwell <laughs> and I was like, I'm trapped. <laughs> It was this Connect Tech?
0: Yeah, I remember this.
3: Because <laughs> <laughs> I was like,
0: that one was tricky. <laughs> yeah, I the
2: elevator to the for the hotel is tricky. <laughs> Over communicating is something that I think is really important. Often I've been at events where the organizers want to have an air of like, we have everything under control. This is a very slick professional operation, wonderful aspiration, but things aren't quite going to plan. All you need to do is tell your audience exactly what is happening. Even if you don't have a plan, just say, we're still working out exactly what we're going to do. Because then you take away the questions, you take away the worry. And I think it also humanizes you as an organizing team and your event a bit. And makes it a bit easier for people to approach you as organizers because you can make mistakes too.
1: Yeah, to Tessa's point, I think View Toronto was one of the ones that I felt did a really good job when it came to like keeping their site up to date with like schedules and making it easily accessible on my phone. Cause you know, that's what you're expecting is to basically queue it up on your phone, see what talks are. And then, you know, sometimes the talks aren't for you, so you be able to always point like go into the hallway track and just chat with people rather than attending a talk that is not as relevant to you. One of the worst things is to see a schedule on the phone and then decide, I'm not going to go to this slot. But then the speakers got switched because as speakers, we know sometimes things happen. People need to leave early, but then you miss the talk because the site wasn't updated correctly. And so it's just, yeah, to Tessa's point, definitely over communicating and having an up-to-date website is just the bare minimum you can do.
2: Or making it clear where the true source of information is. That might be a physical board in a venue. It might be, you know, screens in the venue. It might be the website. Chances are you're not going to get to updating every piece of collateral you have if things change. But people need to know which one they can trust.
3: Also for in-person events, even though this is one piece of media you definitely cannot update, I always appreciate badges that have a schedule on the back just so I can have that as a quick reference. Mm.
1: Yeah, I think one of the tricky parts as like a partial, like having helped out at organizing conferences is that when speakers do have to switch for whatever reason, I think to Kevin's point, it reminds me now, like really over-communicating that that slot has switched is critical just because there are people who basically just missed the update. And then there were basically complaints because, I mean, as far as the schedule, they were concerned when they opened the email that morning, like X person is speaking at Y time slot. And again, there are legitimate reasons to switching the lineup, but then it's like over communicating that to your audience, I think is critical so that they're not upset later.
2: There are other more subtle things. My conference in January, I was making my schedule in Sketch or whatever, and I copy and paste my layout for, you know, one time slot, and I forgot to change one of the times, So I had a duplicate. Uh, so this is happening at this time, and then this is happening, but it's at the same time. And that clearly isn't the case. It's a one stream <laughs> conference. And I remember in the opening talk, I went, right, everyone get a pen out your bag. We're going to open our little booklets around our neck together and we're going to cross this out and we're going to update it together. And it was fine. Now everyone knows. Now if someone has a question, chances are another attendee can answer it if they didn't catch that memo. It was quite funny as well.
3: Yeah, I remember at one conference I was at, there was a discussion about whether a speaker change should be explicitly communicated broadly like through an announcement or if it should only be subtly updated on the website so I'm curious if there are situations where there are changes but for some reason it's inadvisable to overly communicate them I guess and just communicate them under communicate them
2: I genuinely can't think of a reason why you shouldn't communicate that something you've said is now different You make a mistake, you should own it. Maybe there's something nefarious that's happened. You should communicate it. Like I can't genuinely think of a reason why I wouldn't be super forthcoming. How you do it might differ. Severity might differ. Like there's Mm. been a change of lineup versus I don't know, the last speaker's cancelled, so the event's over 20 minutes earlier or half hour earlier. I think that matters less. Because no one's gonna change their plans now based on that. Maybe it could be a bit more of a subtle update. But I can't think of a reason why you wouldn't do it, you know?
1: Yeah, the only thing I can think of is maybe if a keynote speaker that maybe a lot of people are expecting to be there at the conference has to cancel at the last minute. Maybe that would influence people's reason to attend. But at the same time, I think to Kevin's point, transparency is better than having them find that later. So yeah, no, I got nothing.
2: (laughs) I'm not sure about this phrase, but controlling the narrative is also important. You know, being forthcoming, explaining the reasons why means people aren't going to fill in gaps for you potentially incorrectly or in a way Mm -hmm. that is damaging to you as a team or an event or a brand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very
3: good point. I feel like a lot of people are understanding of something if they understand why it's happening versus just like, this is something that happened and it's bad. Well, that's it. Going back to what you were saying about a single stream conference, I am curious to hear more about people's thoughts on single track versus multi-track conferences. Kevin, you look like you have a lot of thoughts. Would you like to start?
2: Yes, it depends on what you're trying to achieve. For my conference, it's a core skills conference. I think that pretty much all the content is relevant to the whole audience. I like a single stream. It gives a networking time, a sense of camaraderie. We've all experienced the same content broadly. So we have some conversation topics already. And there's something quite nice about that shared experience. At very technical conferences, perhaps you want to have streams based on, I don't know, where you're at in terms of complexity and what you're wanting to get or whether you're interested in more, I don't know, cutting edge, topics or you know more specific content. In that case maybe have multiple streams because people at those ones might be coming for like technical insight and upskilling. So it needs to be more focused at their goals. I like single stream conferences. I like that sense of camaraderie that people get through having a shared experience.
0: I also like single track, but I hadn't even considered the camaraderie aspect, but that's absolutely true. Cause then, you know, at the reception afterwards you all have something to talk about because you all saw the same things. But the other thing about multi track conferences is I hate it when there's two talks at the same time that I want to see because I'm like, what do I do? Well, Ben no. has a trick for you.
3: <laughs>
0: I'm no Ben, so <laughs> I hate feeling like I'm going to miss out on something, especially at a conference that has multiple tracks where it maybe seems like the content wouldn't appeal to the same audience, but as front end developers, we do all the things clearly. So, (laughs) (laughs) so yeah, like if there's like a design track and a view track, that makes it really difficult because I'm interested in both.
2: That's when it's down to organizers to also communicate whether your content's being recorded and on what terms and when it will be released. Because sometimes it doesn't matter what do you want to learn today versus what don't you mind going back to later.
1: Yeah, when it comes to multi-tracks, at Connect Tech, they do multi-disciplines. So she mentioned there's like a design track, and then there's like a JavaScript track, and then different framework tracks. And I think there's even a UX track. But... Actually, one of my first conferences, CSS Dev Comp, they actually have a kind of unique way of doing it where it's a two-track conference, at least when they were doing it. And then the best talks were ranked like so you could vote for it. And then the most popular ones were given again at the end so that everyone could see basically the most popular ones. And so, again, an interesting twist on the multi-track Panel, But to Ari's point, I still had times where there were literally two talks going on by people I wanted to see both. Even if you have like the most popular ones voted to give their presentation again, that doesn't guarantee that the one you want to see will show up. So I think to Kevin's point, having either some sort of recording that at least letting people know what is recorded because sometimes some tracks are allowed to be recorded and some aren't so then at least you can make a decision that like this track i'll go to because i'm not going to get a chance to see it certainly would make a big difference
2: that wildcard slot makes me really uncomfortable i like telling speakers exactly where they can expect to be how long they have also a lot of speakers get a bit worried about delivering their talk why would i put them through it twice you know, you don't
3: that think having thought. to win a popularity contest on top of giving a talk sounds thrilling and fun? <laughs> yeah, so yeah, not only
0: do you have to worry about giving your talk twice, but if you don't have to give your talk twice, you're still demoralized because nobody wanted to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, everybody loses.
3: Is it based on attendees or title? Because if only 10 people went to your talk and then they have to vote on whether it's the most popular talk, I guess I have a lot of questions.
1: Yeah. The other interesting thing they did with that conference as well is the CFP was a double blind experiment. So you submitted your talks, and then basically they were aggregated into a survey where then they were grouped into categories. Like, again, let's assume they're tracks like, here are all the React talks, here are the Vue talks, here are the Angular talks, here are the Design talks. And then as an attendee, you would go through and rank how much you wanted to basically CH1, and you didn't get to see the speaker or the bio. You only got to saw the title and the abstract. And that was my first exposure to CFPs. <laughs> and ooh, I would tell you, as someone who submitted, I learned a lot of lessons, but it was interesting. An interesting experience. I see some facial reactions. I'd love to hear what people are thinking. <laughs> yeah, we're all like
3: horrified. <laughs> I definitely want to hear more about speaker selection, but Kevin, I think you had more to say about this communicating to speakers.
2: <laughs> My face was all about the response to the the blind TFP that's public. I love that. You have a risk. I think things like that could be a popularity contest, like just how big is your network over what is the objective quality of your talk. But I'd love it as an idea. That's really interesting.
0: Mostly, I was just like, wait, what? (laughs) I feel like I could go either way on like the whole popularity contest aspect because because the fact that it is anonymized. Great. But we all know that people are going to be like, my talk is called this. You should go vote for it. So,
3: yeah. I think also people would definitely recognize my talks from the titles. That's so
1: true. (laughs) Well, that's just it. Some of the more famous people who have either given the talk before or had that style. It was immediate. Like I could tell immediately who the speaker was even without it.
2: There's also an issue if you pay your speakers, events where I can, I pay speakers, and then you're effectively Mm -hmm. asking people to have a popularity contest with a payment. And I don't think those things are compatible in good faith.
1: Yeah, it's tricky. So I mean, full disclosure, I was not involved with the organizing. I was just an attendee, but just from my perspective and my experience now, I think They did select some keynote speakers to begin with. So it wasn't like their speaker lineup was complete gamble. And to be honest, if I remember correctly, they didn't release the results. If anything, I think they used it to influence, maybe help guide their decision rather than it just being like, here's like the top five and this is what we went with. I think the trickiest part I would say for those who have heard this and are thinking about implementing this, is that it made it hard for people applying for CFPs to choose the right category because basically there was decision fatigue as you went down like call it 50 CFPs. And if you saw animation like five times, you're probably not going to be as likely to rank the bottom ones as nice as you might have been the first one. And so you end up with some inherent biases with this voting system. And let alone if someone happened to put the same talk, but in a different category, like good for beginners and not in like an intermediate track, whatever, then all of a sudden you were putting yourself up against like a different number of CFPs. So I would say similar to Kevin, I like the idea, but the implementation of it is particularly tricky. Just because, yeah, yay my research background.
3: (laughs) Tying the decision fatigue back to the multi-track conversation, I feel like to Ari's point, that's another difficulty there. Like, There's certain choices as an attendee that I like not having to make, and that's one of them. And also from the attendee perspective, like you don't necessarily know what the presentation style of the speaker is going to be. So if you're interested in both talks, but one doesn't work for you, maybe you feel bad to leave in the middle, but you're like, oh, I could have... Gone with that other talk or something and also from the speaker perspective if you're in the same time slot as like a really popular speaker and similar to connect tech the only multi-track conferences i've been to have different tracks of technologies and i think it's pretty hard to book venues that have room sizes that are appropriate for like the entire population that's attending the conference so you end up with a lot of very sparsely populated audiences Mm -hmm. so i feel like that's Tough.
2: Have any of you heard of an unconference before?
3: Sounds familiar. Yeah.
2: Yeah. A couple of you are nodding. So I am also one of the organisers of Barcamp London, and the idea behind Barcamp is you go to an event. And if you think of this timetable where in the columns you have time slots and in the rows you have rooms with the number of people who can sit in that room, the talks are generated by the attendees on the morning of the event. So you have a broad theme. Our theme is simply tech, though it's just a suggestion. We've had talks on things like making the perfect cup of tea, rolling sushi, (laughs) beekeeping, as well as technical topics. And one way I've seen them run is at the beginning, people can come up to the mic, pitch their idea. You put your arm up if you're interested and then the facilitators go right based on those hands they get a medium-sized room they get a small room you probably don't get a room because like no one's interested and then we also encourage people to vote with their feet in a completely non-judgmental way if this is not what you wanted or there's something else you're interested in or you're no longer getting value get up and walk out and as a speaker if you are pitching a topic you have to be okay with that Mm -hmm. really really fun And way easier to organize because you essentially just need a space with a few breakout rooms on the side to have to deal with speakers because they're your (laughs) attendees.
3: Have you tried anything like that remotely yet?
2: In fact, the Barcamp London team actively decided that we will postpone Barcamp London 12 until we can run it in person because it is an event that very much Mm. benefits from being in person. And I think we just made the call that we don't think it will work. That said, one of the you got this network events, humans conf, they have the exact same format, but online, and it works for them.
3: So going back to topic and speaker selection, I'm curious to hear everyone's opinions on the CFP process, because I know Ben and I have had a lot of discussions and arguments about this before. And I'm curious what different approaches people have seen and what their opinions are on the process.
2: I've run CFPs in a number of ways, or I've run talk selection in a number of ways. Depending on the event, it might be appropriate to directly contact people and ask them to attend your event. That's great. You have direct contact with people. It's good for quick turnaround. It's not necessarily good for having like a wide selection pool or a diverse selection pool outside of people you know. So you just have to be conscious of that. You can somewhat remedy that just by virtue of who you reach out to but you just need to be thinking about that because you're at risk of not having a very diverse lineup but also it's only ever going to be people you know For You Got This, we have people submit. Then we have an external review panel. None of the organizers are on it. We've run it the same way every time in that they each get two-thirds of the list. There's three of them. They get two-thirds of the list. They review every talk with some notes and a score between one and five. And then at the end, they have a call with us, with one of our team, who also hasn't seen the CFPs, and they pick their top 10. So the event has eight slots, two of them we invite, just like you mentioned earlier, and then six are from the CFP. So they give us 10. And from that 10, we get to do that final curation, top six and fall back four. And then everyone gets an email, whether it's a rejection, an acceptance, but they only get a week to accept. And then a, you were really close, but you weren't quite there at the top. We'll let you know within a week if one of the like top six can't make it. And that pretty much sets us up quite nicely. Slightly longer winded process but works. And then for you got this from home, which we ran in June, I went through all the rejected CFPs to ones that I personally think would be really good for the audience because it was a really quick turnaround event. So I'd kind of expressed an interest in speaking on a particular topic. And I reached out to people. Some said they were no longer interested or available or were otherwise not up for it. But we got like a great set of speakers out of that.
1: Nice. Yeah. For me personally, you know, I think One thing that Kevin has said a lot this episode what I think is important to remember as you're organizing events, it doesn't even have to be conferences, meetups too, is that impact. And so with conferences in particular, it's easy to go to like the common people who speak around the world and who have a large speaking portfolio. But I'm a big fan of making sure that basically rough around like, I would say a third, 20 to 30% of your speakers are kind of new speakers, like taking a chance, like giving people that opportunity, particularly at conferences to come on board and get that experience because basically to Kevin's point, otherwise you lose that diversity. And over time you have the same, you know, 12 people speaking at every conference. And we do want to find ways to support people and bring other talented people into the spotlight. So as long as you'd focus on that and then like to Kevin's point of being inclusive and making sure your lineup is diverse. I think those are the critical things I think that, must go into any kind of CFP selection process, whether it's by committee, by blind selection, like all those things should always be kind of considered.
2: Though, with a blind review, you might still end up with a complete lineup of, I don't know, white men. But then you can say, these are objectively the best talks. This was the process. It's been my worry every time I've done it. And it fortunately has never happened because the reality is it is un- very, very, very unlikely to happen. But also I trust in the process. Also, frankly speaking, your two keynote spots are your chance to somewhat course correct. I don't invite people because they fit in certain groups in those keynotes, but they are a chance to course correct if it is going way off the rails. Yeah, just some extra considerations.
3: Well, Ari, I'm curious for you as a speaker how you chose the conference to give your talk at or like what CFP's you found appealing or like what you found appealing about a speaker panel as an attendee because like for me if to Kevin's point this potential of a speaker list of a single demographic then I might start wondering how I frame the CFP or what audiences that have access to that CFP so do you mind talking a bit more about your perspective on that
0: I didn't choose the conference I spoke at
3: oh that's right <laughs> It chose me. (laughs) You're so famous. (laughs)
2: So cool. One extra note. When we ran You Got This the first time around, we had a mentorship program for first-time speakers. Really wanted to encourage first-time speakers. And when I've run corporate hackathons before that people have to apply to, I ask people if they've kind of come before. Plus, I know who's in our network and I try and fill at least a percentage of the space with people who have never come to one of our events before to try and keep that pool with new people so it doesn't kind of stagnate with the same, you know, hundred people. Sounds
1: good. Well, this has been a lot of fun. As we wrap up the show, Kevin, where can people reach
2: out to you if they have questions regarding whether it's Vonage or organizing events? You can chat to me on Twitter. I am underscore PHZN. My DMs are open or you can at me or whatever. And I'm happy to answer any questions that people have.
3: And Z is Z for our
2: American listeners. Yes, Z is Z for you American listeners.
0: <laughs> Only a third of our listeners listen from the US. So
3: very cool to know. Yeah.
1: Great. Well, make sure to include that in the show notes. And with that, it's time for us to move on to picks. Tessa, would you like to get us started?
3: Well, sure. One pick that I had been reminded of recently, and Kevin's comments about problem solving on the day of an event brought this to mind, is there was this Victorian slice of life comic series that came out a while ago called Emma, and it centers around this maid named Emma who... I don't know why I'm making this so complicated. She does made things, but, you know, day to day in the household, there's always some like last minute problem that crops up that she has to figure out or the staff has to figure out together. Kind of like the kinds of problems that come up in Downton Abbey, I guess. And so if you want to empathize with the thrill of fixing day of problems, maybe that's something you can check out. And this weekend, I also started watching Kingdom, which is a K-drama based on a webtoon by Lab. who also, as far as I can tell, they're like a very intense... Webtoon Studio, and they made another webtoon I really liked called "Under the Distant Sky." The art there is just really intense. But anyway, Kingdom is a historical royal drama about a zombie infection, and also the guy who plays the crown prince. I was like, he looks like the guy who played the crown prince in this old drama called Gung, which means like castle. I think it's translated as Palace Hours. But if he was older. And then I remembered that people age and it turns out it's the same guy. But anyway, it's it's fun and you get the palace intrigue and like the zombie intrigue, but the first episode is pretty gory, so warning there.
1: Sounds good. Ari, what do you have for us this week?
3: I have a Netflix limited
0: series called Stateless. It is about the problems with the immigration system in Australia. It is based on real events, but obviously dramatic liberties I'm sure were taken. It's very interesting. To be honest, I have to imagine that detention centers in the U.S. are probably way worse than what they show there. But it was an interesting look at the balance between humanity and process.
1: Sounds good. Kevin, what are your picks this
2: week? I'm going to do a couple of shameless plugs, if that's all right. Absolutely. The first is my conference in January that I've mentioned a couple of times called You Got This. It is a network of community-run conferences about core skills, the kind of skills that require you know, emotional labor and almost never get spoken about, apart from in that slot in a multi-track conference right next to a very popular talk. We record our talks and they're available for free online, so we've got a pretty good talk library at this point to learn more. And then my second one is a newsletter that Amy Dickens are writing called Event Handler. And it is a newsletter and soon-to-be podcast about running developer events. So if you're interested about developer events, subscribe to it.
1: Very cool. I would definitely be like that.
3: Just to interject for a moment, I feel like You Got This is still accepting CFPs. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, at the time of recording right now. Yeah, to the end of September. And then October is the whole period of like review and having people accept and then accepting fallbacks. And then we're releasing tickets on November 1st. And it's in January. Sounds good.
1: All right. And then as far as my picks, since we're talking about conferences this episode, I have two, which will be View Toronto and Connect Tech, both of which will have view tracks and they're online and completely free. So please sign up and join and show your support. And with that, that's all for this week's episode. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And until next time, enjoy the view.